Hello, and welcome back to Lost in Citations, our regular podcast where we speak to the producers of interesting content and see if we can find a little bit more about their background. Joining us today is Dr. Jeff Jordan, who is an Associate Tutor of Applied Linguistics at the University of Leicester in the UK. Uh, very nice to make your acquaintance, Doctor. Nice to be here. Thank you for asking me. Well, thank you very much for agreeing to uh, be part of our podcast project. The paper that we're going to be speaking about is called We Need to Talk About Course Books, which was a paper that you wrote uh, with Humphrey Gray in 2019. Can you outline for our listeners how course books present a different way of viewing language learning than we know from SLA, uh, Second Language Acquisition Research? The thing about course books is that they um, adopt an approach to language learning that uh, supposes that the first sort of step is um, telling people about the language, and then the second step is is practicing it. I suppose the most kind of classical form of this is what's known as PPP, presentation, uh, production, and practice, and production. Now, in course books, it's slightly modified because what they do is um, do a bit of contextualizing and then embed whatever uh, structure they want to practice in the text and then they practice the structure. But in any case, the idea behind it is that that when you learn a language, um, first you get what's called the, the declarative knowledge, conscious knowledge about the language. So um, that's the sort of first step. And after that, you practice those points to the point where they become automatic um, so that they're supposed to um, become, transform into what we call um, procedural knowledge. And procedural knowledge is really what drives language learning. It, it's not like learning geography or, or biology, for example. If, um, learning geography, uh, you have to know that um, Paris is the capital of France. But in language learning, just because you know uh, declaratively, consciously, that um, went is the past tense of the verb go, for example, doesn't mean that when you're in a position where you have to actually produce the language in, in uh, real-time communicative activities, that you can actually come out with the, the word when, when you want it. So that's the real big difference between learning a language and learning other subjects in a school curriculum. It doesn't really matter, it doesn't depend so much on what you know as what you can do. There's a difference between declarative and procedural knowledge and it isn't, it's simply not the case. And, and here's the big uh, problem for a course book it isn't the case that you have to start with one in order to get to the other. Most language knowledge, most um, of what we, we know about language is unconscious. It's implicit knowledge that we get through using the language, through picking it up through communicative use. Um, so that's the real problem with uh, the coursebook approach. It assumes a way of learning language which we know from all the work we've done in second language acquisition in the last six years just isn't the case. The real way that we learn language is through interlanguage development, which is not linear. It's not you go 
one by one. First you learn the present tense, then you learn, learn the present uh, continuous, then you learn the past tense. And, then, and so it's, it's simply, we know that that is not the way that uh, people learn languages. Uh, just simply not the way, and, and what's more, um, learners cannot learn in the way uh, that they're asked to learn using a course book. It, it just goes against their interlanguage development, and this is Peenemann's famous um, learnability hypothesis. It says you, you can't teach people what they're not ready to learn. This is, this is not a binary question. Uh, there's, there's, there's room for discussion within it, that course books are perhaps more commercially motivated than they are teaching motivated, perhaps that language teachers, it tends to be a career that people move between different institutions. And so having a course book assists them with uh, acclimatizing to a new curriculum faster than it would be if they brought their own materials with them. The most common and, and the most powerful, I suppose, argument in favor of course books is that they're very convenient um, and they do give a sense of uh, purpose, direction, beginning and end to a language course. Um, and what's more, they provide the syllabus, they provide uh, the materials you need to carry out that syllabus. And as I say, they provide um, the direction that you start at unit one with whatever it is, and you, you can, you and as a teacher and the students can see that they're making progress towards the end of the course. Um, the problem with it all is that it's in it, <coughs> excuse me, is inefficacious. It, it doesn't deliver the goods if the goods are the ability to uh, use the target language for communicative purposes. We know from, you know, 30, 40 years um, from after the war, where uh, people were taught languages using course books. Uh, and after seven years, I remember myself learning French um, at school. And after seven years of French, um, I don't think I could have gone to Paris and, and, and ordered uh, a cup of coffee. Uh, you know about the language, but you don't know how to use it. And this is absolutely typical. Now, the question of the commercialization is, is really the, the biggest one, the one that I'm actually most concerned with these days, is that um, the way that uh, ELT is organized is due to its um, commercial value. Um, there are various estimates, they, they vary widely, but uh, Peenemans, for example, in 19, uh, sorry, 2016, estimated the annual worth of ELT to be approximating to $200 billion. It's the most massive industry. Mm. Um, in terms mm. of publishing, in terms of teaching itself, in terms of examinations and in terms of uh, training. Uh, it's massive, it's a huge industry. And of course, a very convenient way of packaging uh, language learning is through course books, uh, through the CFR, the Common European Framework uh, Reference, which puts everybody into a, a level from A1 to C2 mm -hmm. and the high uh, stake exams which which do the same thing 
So it, that's the problem that um, it's called by many people these days, the commodification of ELT means that it's, it's the language itself first is cut up into pieces, which is the basis for a synthetic syllabus. That syllabus uh, consists of bits of the language which are presented and then practiced bit by bit. Um, and the student's job is to put it all together, which is why it's called synthetic. Uh, so um, it doesn't make sense. It's not the way people uh, learn languages. It's not efficacious in that what is taught is, is not learned and so on and so on. So there are all types of serious problems, but it is very convenient. It's very profitable. And as you say, with students, sorry, teachers move from one institution to another. Well, when they go, they just say, what course book are we using? Um, right. And that's why it's so powerful. It's such a very powerful, the, the, the interest behind it is so huge. Big uh, players like Pearson and National Geographic and, and, uh, and the British Council and IATEFL and uh, the, the examining boards and the uh, teacher training boards and so on, these have such clout, such enormous um, uh, financial and political clout, that it's very difficult for people like uh, those who are opposed to it to, to, to get their voice heard. And so it's a kind of, you know, vicious circle, it goes on and on. We've, we, we've been in this situation now of using course books since um, the late, uh, well, since the mid-1980s. So we're getting on for 40 years of using this kind of synthetic syllabus in the way we do. And, and there's no chance, uh, no, no very big signs of change. Although I'm happy to say that there are now um, dog maids having a, quite a big revival. There's a lot more interest in TBLT. To, uh, so, so there are a few little uh, green shoots, let's say, but the domination of uh, course book driven ELT is, 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 is still very, very, very dominant indeed. No, I would agree. And, and, you, and you, it's right to bring up the idea of efficacy because what was driven uh, through learning foreign languages in wartime was findings that grammar translation was a popular way of teaching the language and a, and a, and a successful way of, of learning the language and the best way it was explained to me through a former colleague was of course everyone was under orders to learn German that's an efficacious way to learn a language so that's why grammar translation often continued after wartime because you're, you're taking 20 year olds and, and telling them to learn German under orders yes um I'd, I'd like to bring up uh, the idea of whether you think there have been any efficacious course books that you've used in your career and whether they were ones that you chose yourself were given to you by your uh, institution ones you've made yourself perhaps no uh, <laughs> i think it's almost uh, an oxymoron an efficacious course book um why? Because they, um, it's sequential. They lead the learner through from, from the first page to the last in an ordered sequence. Now, of course, 
uh, teachers are very good at modifying the course book. They, they, they skip this bit and that, they jump about a little bit, but they are nevertheless pretty much constrained. Unless uh, the teachers throw the, just abandon the syllabus and, and use the course book as a kind of uh, materials bank, you know, they, oh, I'll, I'll use this listening text or I'll, I'll do this activity. What you're supposed to do with the course book is, is use it um, systematically because it's a syllabus. And if it is a syllabus, well, then it's a synthetic syllabus. It's a synthetic syllabus, which means that it chops the language up and presents them bit by bit, uh, presenting them, uh, put it contextualizing, situationalizing the, the, the embedded uh, form, and then practicing it. Um, and that is an inefficacious way of going about uh, the job. Far better to involve people in using the language. Uh, very often you hear this thing, um, language teaching is not telling students about the language, it's getting the students themselves to talk in the language, for themselves to do things in the language, to do relevant things that they want to be able to do in the second language, and through their involvement with using it, through their involvement in tasks, which uh, involve uh, the, the language, that's the way they'll work it out for themselves. And to the extent that they need help, well, scaffolding the task, giving help, responding to uh, problems that the students come across in grammar, vocabulary, collocation, pronunciation, whatever it is, uh, reactively, rather than having a plan before you even begin the course of what you're going to teach and when you're going to teach it, um, is much better. So I would say, um, no, I have never, ever found a course book um, that I thought was um, a good way to go about uh, teaching. Let's move from, as you say, the synthetic approach to teaching a second language, and let's move to the analytic approach, which you outline in your paper. What yes. ways do you analyze the needs of your students and how do you respond to them? What, what is your kind of repertoire of skills for um, connecting with the needs of your students? In, uh, I adopt sort of Mike Long's uh, approach to uh, task-based language teaching. Um, uh, his kind of seminal work on this was a book uh, of 2015 called um, uh, Second Language Acquisition and Task-Based Language Teaching. And it's a very thorough book. Now in there, there Long's uh, view of needs analysis he calls it uh, identifying target tasks. Um, the role of the needs analysis is to find out what things the group of students who are going to do the course need to do in the target language. And he says that in order to find those out, you have to ask not just, in fact, not primarily the students, but rather those um, domain experts, as he calls them. So if these students uh, come from school, for example, and they want to go to university, well, then you have to talk to the people at the university and find out what it is that the students are going to have to do with English in the course. 
And that, of course, will depend, this is obviously English for academic purposes, will depend on, on what kind of subjects they're doing and what kind of course it is and so on. If they, on the other hand, come from, um, I don't know, the, the uh, hotel industry, for example, or if they come, if, uh, if they're doctors or if they're business people, whoever it is uh, the group sort of consists of, um, and, and uh, of course, something else we'll have to look at in a minute is when you get a group of people with very different uh, needs. But in any case, the, the idea is that what you have to do is identify the target tasks, the things that people will have to do. And you do that by going and talking to the people who know about that. You talk to the lawyers, you talk to the doctors, you talk to the academics, you talk to the hotel managers, you talk to whoever they are who, who, who knows that. And of course, you, you, you consult the students themselves. So what you get at the end is a, uh, is a list of target tasks. Must, uh, needs to be able to um, um, send email messages, give a lecture, take notes, um, give diagnose patients, ask for advice, uh, and so on and so on. Um, kind of, um, it, it goes a bit further than a sort of functional list, these sort of um, adenine, can uh, take part in a conversation that doesn't really mean anything. So you get to the sense of this is, these are the things they have to do. And from that, you, um, you design, not that it's the teacher's job, this is the, the syllabus designer and the material designer's job, is design texts, multi-listening text, written text, video, whatever you need, that um, uh, use the language necessary to be able to carry out. Now, depending on the level, this, this language will have to be modified um, and elaborated, um, but that, that's the way you should do it. You start off, what do you need to do? Identify target tasks. For the target tasks, you then design pedagogic tasks. And these pedagogic tasks use materials that uh, incorporate the language needed. And then the syllabus itself, when you carry it out, uh, is the teacher um, uh, does a series of pedagogic tasks, which um, lead the students up towards the ability to perform the target tasks. Well, from the position, as you say, of a, of a syllabus designer, as someone, I mean, I've been in a situation where I was a course coordinator for, for many years, and it's a very difficult thing to, get people on board if they would prefer to use a text or they would prefer to be in that camp. So if, if, if you're someone like me who would prefer to have an analytical approach to courses, but you're in a position where you are required to design a course where people would prefer the synthetic approach, is this something that you've uh, seen in your career? Do you have any advice for people who would perhaps like to encourage people towards the more analytic approach than the synthetic approach? Yes, um, I uh, taught uh, English for um, 25 years or more, but I taught in the, um, the late 70s uh, until the sort of mid 90s. And I was slap bang in the middle in the 80s of a sort of explosion of what's now known under the umbrella of communicative language teaching. Um, for about uh, nearly 10 years, 
we didn't use course books. We didn't want to use course books. It was a terrific uh, sort of revolutionary zeal among uh, teachers for that time, where the limitations of the course book, it was a particularly um, narrow uh, version of, um, it was a sort of behavioristic um, uh, version of the PPP paradigm. Um, where I forget what the course books were called, first things first, but I, I can't remember. But in any case, they were so um, strict in their methodology, so strict. First, you, you, you have the, the, um, the grammar, then you practice it, then you do this. You, you never use any words that haven't already been introduced. Um, uh, making mistakes was kind of, this is a behavioristic kind of paradigm. Making mistakes was, sure. was, was an affluent. Drill, lots of drilling and, and so on. So this is a very behavioristic, very uh, rigorous and very limited kind of way of teaching. And the revolt against it came in the 1960s as a result actually, or uh, 1970s, sorry, a result of work in second language acquisition, stuff like Pick Corder and, and, and then others um, came along and said, actually, uh, <laughs> that, that's not the way um, people learn what the best thing to do is to give them the chance to use the language until they actually have the chance to practice for themselves. All they'll do is learn about the language. They'll be able to do multiple choice tests. They'll be able to, to tell you what the French for Apple is, but they won't be able to join in communicative, um, uh, engaging um, uh, communication. So there, there was a, uh, an explosion of wild sort of uh, methodologies, Suggestopedia, Silent Way, all these sort of mad things. But when in the 1980s, none of the teachers in the school, the Sadi Idiomas I worked at in that 1980, for example, 1982, not one of the 60 teachers used a course book. There was a materials bank, some people were doing Silent Way, some people were doing Suggestopedia, but nobody <laughs> was using a course book. Well, all that got snuffed out in the late 1980s, 1990s, when the new headway and these new course books came along that were much uh, more professionally um, and more interestingly made. The bosses thought, this is marvellous. This is so much cheaper than, than paying for all this materials production and syllabus design and so on. So they were in favour. And of course, um, younger teachers or less experienced teachers or new teachers found it very convenient. So it also disappeared. But at the time when we did make our own materials, when we designed things ourselves, when we, when we sat around and actually uh, uh, decided what kind of syllabus we were going to have, and uh, it was a very uh, basic syllabus because it was actually just a series of, of, of activities that we were doing. Um, it was fantastic and everybody loved it. And now, uh, although everybody who has such a big stake in course books um, will deny it, people like Hugh Deller and so on, who are absolutely uh, in favor of them because they write the damn things, um, <laughs> they say, oh no, it's much too complicated, much too difficult. Why, why, get, why get teachers to do this when uh, you can get professionals to do it and so on? Well, um, if you have, um, a kind of uh, fairly stable student population. So for example, if you're teaching um, at universities where you know year after year, you'll get uh, more or less the people who are interested in more or less the same thing in uh, 
in medicine or law or whatever it is, or if you're teaching um, in a particular uh, industry, a particular um, area of commerce and so on, again, where you know, where you know you have a fairly stable group of students, then in those circumstances, what you have at the, at the start is some um, heavy lifting. You have to invest, because it's not fair to ask the teachers to do it, you have to invest, uh, I don't know, let's say a thousand hours in somebody, an expert, um, going out there and finding out what uh, kinds of needs there are in this local uh, community and then designing the course for them. But once you've got it, you can use that stuff over and over again. And there are now big meta-studies. There's a big one, 1970, uh, 2017, which I mentioned in that article, uh, Bogofsky, uh, who, who, who showed from a series of 55, or 55, I think, um, studies, that where TBLT was implemented, and implemented not just in English for academic purposes, but, but for junior school, for, for vocational school, for all sorts of big groups in China. It had tremendous acceptance, not just by the teacher, but certainly by the students. A much higher level of motivation, much higher level of all sorts of measures of enjoyment and, and, and results too. So it's just this, it's part of the propaganda pushed out by defenders of the course book method that uh, no other way of doing it is possible. It's just not the case. If, if, if you have people who are willing to do it, if you have a group of, and a boss is willing to do it, after an initial investment, it works just as, uh, it doesn't involve more work to do and, and the results are much, much better. Yeah, the, the, the study that you're referencing uh, is from, uh... Uh, Brifonsky and McKay, uh, who, yes, who were talking about high levels of success and stakeholder satisfaction. And I think that that's, that's something that really needs to be brought up that stakeholders, uh, it's not just the students, it's not just the teachers, we get the institutions themselves, the, the future employers of these people probably get more satisfaction and better outcomes from having a well-focused syllabus that works. You, you talk about uh, a materials bank that's produced by teachers, and it would seem that we're in the age where building a materials bank would be fairly straightforward. Use of the internet, I mean, the, the project that we're doing here, Lost in Citations, speaking to people in different areas, we're, we're building our own materials bank here. Do you think that, yeah. do you think that we're, we're missing a trick by, by not building up something authentic and just following blindly i mean obviously you, you don't think that the uh people like longman pearson or sangage or people like that we shouldn't be doing this but do you think that teachers themselves individually are, are missing an opportunity to build up their own materials by following the the, the track of their institutions in course books Yes. Um, well, I, I, I think it's uh, important to say that it's not the teacher's job to design uh, the syllabus or even the majority of the materials. Of course, all teachers do have their own private store of materials, their own favourite explanations or favourite activities. And of course, um, uh, and I think it makes absolute sense for teachers to collaborate 
um, and build up a uh, materials bank. Um, they should ideally have the support of the boss. It's a boss's job, not their job. And if you can persuade the boss, look, let's try, even let's say, for example, that it's um, a private language school that offers uh, courses at each of the seven CFR levels and does a couple of exam prep courses. Well, you say, well, look, let's try out one TBLT-based course. Let's do a course for whatever group of students in that area might uh, seem appropriate. So, for in Barcelona, you might do one for for um, the hotel industry. And they say, okay, we'll do that. So we'll offer a course. That would mean that the boss would would put up a stump up a bit of money. He would employ pay for uh, an expert and also pay a few hours of, or you know, however many hours necessary teacher time to, to collaborate and do it. Now, once you've got that, once you've got target tasks and pedagogic tasks, then you start building up the bank, the, the materials bank. Ideally, teachers who contributed to that bank would be paid for that. Uh, if they wanted to do so voluntarily, well, fantastic. But uh, another way of doing it is um, with a cooperative, a group of teachers who get together, who don't work for one institution, um, but work together. <coughs> well, they work individually, but they, they combine their resources. Um, these uh, teachers cooperatives uh, are actually getting quite um, popular these days. Uh, we used to talk about one here in Barcelona, the SLB, run by um, Nick McMillan. And that's a group of 20 teachers who are very interested now in using uh, TBLT in their various uh, jobs. Some are one-to-one, -one, some are small groups uh, in company, some are university courses and so on. So there's a range of uh, environments where they do their teaching, but all of them now are very interested in implementing a sort of um, TBLT approach. And so they're now getting together a, a, an impressive bank of materials that are um, pedagogic tasks. So they're not the, the typical kind of stuff you find in, in course books, drills, you know, and, and grammar explanations and fill in the gap and, and that sort of stuff. They're actually um, proper pedagogic tasks. And they, they include, of course, various kinds of multimedia material. So I think that's a terrific uh, way to go about things, to, to, to get a group of um, uh, teachers together, either with the boss's blessing in an institution or um, a, a group of students, uh, sorry, a group of teachers who form their own kind of cooperative, and start to build uh, a, a, a materials bank. Uh, I would say, never mind all the bloody gap fills and, and, and exam stuff and all that. Concentrate on on pedagogic tasks. Um, and Neil McMillan, uh, the SLB uh, cooperative, is naturally now networking with others in Ireland and and. and places abroad too um, and they're now networking so that the hope is in a couple of years time there will be an international 
materials bank, as you say, all uh, through the internet, where lots of teachers, hundreds of teachers, we hope eventually, will be able to plug into this uh, rich uh, source of uh, materials that will help them um, with the uh, um, to, to do their their courses. Well, we've spoken uh, in the past to people who are online materials uh, producers, notably Todd Bukins and Dr. Rob Waring. And also we've spoken about, uh, in my area of work, uh, English as a lingua franca, people like Barbara Seidelhofer, who have yes. online uh, databases that can be contributed to by people in their, in their, local, in their local establishments. Do you think that we're, we're entering an area, a stage, where maybe this is a philosophical question where this type of material is not going to be produced by universities not going to be produced by language teaching companies but more likely by individual teachers and it's going to be like a self-access material database that won't require gatekeepers it will be free to use and free to access well i i'd love to think so uh, I, it would be a very very encouraging sign if, if if that happened if we saw more and more richer and richer bigger and bigger more and more freely available kinds of alternatives to the horrible trash that we find in course books um i think that would be terrific the trouble is we mustn't underestimate the power of these big companies and uh, everything behind them, you know, um, when you think of um, the, the money that's uh, generated by these four, by the, 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 the publishers of the materials, the institutions themselves that deliver the courses, the exam bodies who are incredibly powerful, and finally, um, the... Um, the, 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 the teacher training that goes on, these four sort of interlocking uh, parts of commercialized ELT have such power. You only have to go to um, one of the uh, conferences like the IOTEFL International Conference or the TESOL Conference in the States to see just how powerful these people are. You go to the exhibition hall, the exhibition halls in these uh, in these conferences is now the, 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 the very center, the hub of the whole damn thing. That's what drives it all. Mm. And so these guys are not gonna sit around twiddling their fingers and, and watch as people uh, invent uh, alternatives. They're gonna keep, you know, keep producing new stuff. We've got the ELT, what are they called? The Eltons, the, uh, the, the annual, uh, it's like their, their version of the Oscars, where innovative um, language courses and language materials, uh, there are, they meet in London and, it, you know, there's a red carpet. And, they all, you know, and, and uh, my point is that um, the publishers and all those uh, who, who make up uh, the, the ELT establishment are... On the ball on this, you know, mm. they're they're moving in very quickly now, of course, to online, 
learning because of the COVID crisis, and it's obviously got a, a long future ahead of it. So they they won't just stop. They might, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if they start offering some kind of uh, materials banks. Um, what, what they, they, what they, what they do, do though, get rid of that model, which yeah. is based on, you know, this awful idea of, of linear development from A1, right. from knowing nothing to, you know, can do statements. Uh, there are even books at the end of the at the end of the unit that say, now you can <laughs> uh, buy food in a supermarket. Now you can order a room in a hotel. Well, it's nonsense. You know? I mean, that's the obviously completely false I idea of all this idea is completely uh, anathema to those who, who who want to get away from it. So. As long as we have the idea of progression from A1 to C2, oh, you're an intermediate too, and you're ready for this, and you, that kind of um, commodified version of, of learning, where you go along a linear thing from, from you know, one to a hundred, in, in Pearson's now in there, I think they've got, uh, you know, the CFR, CFR is seven levels, I think, or yeah. Well, now Pedersen have got something like six, it's granulated. They've got 125 of the damn things. Well, so, no, I, I, I did read that. I did read that in your paper, and it is it is something that it's it's really difficult to push back on because uh, language teaching is not something that you can, as you pointed out at the very beginning of this of this interview, it's not the same as geography. It's not the same as science. There's not a method right. that you that you learn as you say, stage by stage or granularly, uh, it's something that's different person by person because it is, uh, although language learning is kind of hardwired into our, into our brains, the way that we receive it and the way that we produce it is different person by person. So being able to replicate that in a textbook is very, very difficult. I think the problem may be in teaching this to people who are in administration. So it's kind of easy to explain to people in administration how geography works or science works, but language learning, is there, is there something that you've kind of learned throughout your career how to explain to either get administration on your side or get them to back off and just accept that you're the expert? Yes, I, I was very lucky, I have to say, uh, when I started, um, I um, went to a school that was absolutely open to everybody's ideas. The, the director was terrific. I was recently talking actually to Sandy Willen, who, who's um, well known in, in ELT for her teacher training. And she was the uh, director of studies at a school of international house, who's not exactly uh, famous for its innovative approaches, but she worked in a school, uh, in an institution run, it's a kind of franchise, you know, and the owner of the school was was just a terrific, open guy who, who was absolutely keen for his teachers to, to, to explore. Now, if you get that, if, if, if you're lucky enough to be in a place where where the boss is, is like that, says, okay, let's have a look at this, let's see. I mean, really, the, 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 the basic problem is that not enough work's done on 
not enough attention is given to how we learn languages. Um, if people took the trouble, you know, it just seems so obvious that you, in order to teach, you have to know how people learn. And we know quite a lot about it. We don't know perfectly, but we know enough to know how they don't learn, that's for sure. And we know enough to know that learning language is not the same as learning geography. And we know about this distinction between declarative and procedural knowledge. And we know there are millions of people who, who speak a second language very well indeed without having any idea what a noun or a subordinate clause might be, who don't have any sort of declarative knowledge of that sort and rely quite rightly on, on their procedural knowledge by, by using the language or by doing it. And that's how you learn. So if you can have that conversation with whoever it is, whoever holding the purse strings uh, in public education or private education or secondary or tertiary education, what you have to do um, is persuade, exactly as you say, persuade the person in charge um, that what is going on at the moment, the course book driven, high stakes exam driven, CEFR driven ELT is inefficacious. It doesn't work. Most people who do these courses are disappointed by the results. Most people who do them are not very good at uh, the second language. Of course, there are those who, who succeed very well, but the majority tend to fail. Now, if you can have that conversation with, with the one deciding the issue, the boss, whether it be private, public, wherever it is, and you can persuade them, well, then you're in with a chance. And if you're given the chance, say, okay, let's, let's run one course doing it the other way. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll throw the course book away and we'll do something else. Let's see what happens. There's a pretty good chance that uh, everybody will be impressed. I agree. So final question and thinking maybe five, 10 years in the future, maybe only two years in the future. I think maybe you brought up the, the issue with uh, coronavirus and teaching online. I think that this has kind of opened up people's ideas to what, what's possible using the internet and using the resources that are already available and maybe not course books. Do you think that five years from now, 10 years from now, that we'll be working without course books and that there will be this possibility of a community of online language teachers with Materials Bank producing more efficacious language teaching courses? <laughs> um, I'm just finishing a book now, uh, which I was writing with Mike Long, who sadly died in... Um, this year, earlier this year, in February. And our book is about, um, it's called ELT, the way it is and the way it could be. Um, and, and I hope it'll finally be published uh, later this year. Well, the last bit of the book, I uh, contacted some people who, I th who, are, who are working um, at the sort of radical edges of ELT. Uh, so, for example, Scott Thornbury, who um, uh, advocates his dogma approach, um, and then the hands-up approach uh, John does with um, Palestinian um, in, Ga in Gaza, 
and also Paul Walsh, who's a pretty radical teacher talking in uh, teaching in Germany, Neil McKenna, who's doing the uh, SLB group. So I asked the, and a few other people, I asked them all the question you just asked me. What do you think? Do you think in a few years time, we will actually see the course book driven model topple? And they all said, well, I, <laughs> hand on heart, it's difficult to see such a hugely powerful industry collapse. Um, but what they do say is that, you know, they're sort of hopeful. Mm. Uh, Scott Thornbury, for example, he's seen a, a great a surge of interest in his uh, dogma. He's doing some dogma courses online for uh, teachers and they're always completely booked up and they're doing very well and everybody's very happy with them. So you can hear similar stories about TBLT. People who actually put these courses into practice get terrific results and, 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 and they're very encouraged to, to continue. Uh, similarly, these new um, things like, for example, the hands up project, stuff like that, where, uh, and, and CLT, where content based uh, courses. These alternatives are, I, I think, there's no doubt gaining ground. And I think there's more interest being shown in um, them than before. And certainly the fact that there is now so much interest in um, online teaching, you, you get. See what the normal thing is, they say, how can we do the same thing online? You know, that, that's a kind of, you know, how can we do what we're doing now, we're doing online? How can we use a talks book online? But some people, of course, say, well, wait a minute. Now, given that it's a different uh, environment, maybe we should think again about what we're doing. Um, and so that is actually uh, giving rise to more questioning of the of the normal way of doing things and people are now you know more interested and more open to ideas so why don't you do tasks why don't you start off with a task where they do this and that and then blah 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 so um i think the uh, the honest answer to a question is um i i would i think i'd be being disingenuous as yes it's all going to collapse in four years time there won't be any course books anymore we'll all be doing much more interesting uh things i'm afraid right. that's unlike i i can't put my hand on my heart i hope it happens but i i can't honestly say all i can say is i think there is uh, a groundswell developing of uh, criticism of the way things are people are more critical than they used to be more open to new ideas and I think that's what we ought to build on. We ought to build on local, as you're doing, and as we're doing here in Barcelona, local development of our own ideas, getting away from this globalized, flying in some idiot from London to tell you about it and doing things for yourself, organizing things for yourself, doing things that are relevant and, uh, and, and real for, for your local, area and i think that is a growing um tendency to get away from the global um you know uh idea of english and to, and, and to make it far more local and far more 
and that seems to me to, to at least uh, challenge uh, the status quo. Well, I'd say that's a positive note uh, to go out on, uh, and also, yes. uh, yeah, when... yeah, I think we should be we should be optimistic. We should you? be, and also, uh, when you uh, publish your book, we'd very much like you to come back and 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 talk about it. It sounds like something that, again, is something that's positive. It's something that that's, that's driving uh, a positive movement towards the future of language teaching. And uh, when you do publish it, please. Uh, uh, come back on the podcast and I'd be very very happy to talk to you about it we've I'd been speaking I'd love to oh you're always welcome we've been speaking today with uh, Dr Jeff Jordan on the paper we need to talk about course books thank you very much for your time today Dr Jordan and I wish you all the best of luck in publishing your book and your future works thank you very much a real pleasure lost in citations is an audio journal that invites you to contribute your own interviews. If there's someone whose work you cite regularly and you'd like to hear more from them, then please feel free to arrange your own interview and submit it for consideration. For more information, go to lostincitations.com where you'll find our guide for contributors. What we ask is you submit a five minute audio sample before the interview so that we can help you with any audio quality issues then you can go ahead and record 45 minutes to an hour and submit it at lostincitations at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, we have Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter pages. Finally, a very helpful thing you can do is, if you like the work we're doing, recommend it to a friend. Thank you very much.